The words that we're going to be turning our attention to are in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John and chapter 3, I'll be reading verses 22 through 36. John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. And we're going to be giving our specific attention to 22 through 30. John chapter 3, verse 22. Hear the word of the Lord. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in the Anon near Salim, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. For John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with you beyond Jordan, to whom you bore witness, behold, the same baptizes, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that comes from above is above all. He that is of the earth and speaks of the earth he that comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no man receives his testimony. He that has received his testimony has set his seal that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He that believes in the Son has eternal life. And he that believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. As we turn our attention to this passage now, particularly verses 22 through 30, God clearly and accurately through the pen of John the disciple wants us to know that Christ must be and is preeminent over all. This event takes place as John writes in verse 22 after these things. Note with me two time markers. In verse 22, John writes, after these things. And in verse 24, he says, For John was not yet cast into prison. The first, after these things, of course, points to the period after Pentecost, and particularly Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus. 
Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus about this great must. You must be born again. This is what he was talking to Nicodemus about. And John, being a a very skilled writer, uses Nicodemus as a foil to John the Baptist. These two events are placed side by side with a specific purpose. You see, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and says he knows some things. John's disciples come to John the Baptist in light of a a controversy. And John the Baptist reveals what he knows about Christ. Two teachers in Israel, Nicodemus and John the Baptist. One, although what he says is not disparaging, it just doesn't match up to who Christ is. He says, he calls Jesus, Rabbi, and says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that you do, except God be with him. John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. He that comes from above is above all. These very two different perspectives. And what John is doing, he's setting these two texts right next to each other to show us the contrast and to display the preeminence of Christ, to put forward the preeminence of Christ. The second time marker, John was not yet cast into prison. By doing this, what John does is he lays out these events in a particular context. Everything that's happening here is recorded before John is imprisoned. And if you turn briefly to Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 4 and verse 4. Excuse me, that is, uh, uh, let's see, Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Now, when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. John was thrown into prison. And all of these events now occur before that period of time. And now an event occurs. John and his disciples are baptizing. And simultaneously, Jesus and his disciples are baptizing. The two ministries are running parallel to each other. And because of this, an issue arises. Verse 25. Then arose a question, a controversy, between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. Some issue arose It's not clear in the text if purification itself refers to baptism. More than likely it does. Later on in the New Testament, uh, 
After the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Peter himself uh, explains baptism, he speaks of it in this way. Turn to 1 Peter, and in 1 Peter chapter 3, he says this. Speaking of, of Christian baptism, he makes this reference. He uses the flood in particular, God flooding the earth, to illustrate baptism. And he says in chapter 3 of First Peter, chapter 3, verse 21, the like figure whereunto even baptism does also now save. And now he puts sort of an aside here so that he can clarify what he means by this statement, baptism saves. He says, not the putting away, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And baptism, it's not by going into the water and coming out of the water. It's not by that cleansing. It's not by that purifying that baptism, quote unquote, saves. No. What baptism points to, going into the water and coming out of the water, is the purifying work that Christ does by his spirit in the heart of a believer. So then baptism becomes a symbol that points to what happens internally at regeneration. Baptism does not cause regeneration, but it is a sign of that purifying work. It is the work that Jesus refers to when he was speaking to Nicodemus, and he uses these words in John 3, 5. Truly I say to you, except the man be born of water and of the Spirit. And there, of course, um, uh, Paul describes that for us as the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit in Titus 3. So this issue arose about purification. And it, it may be that the Jews, since they had all of the Old Testament purification rituals, and they also had all of these traditions that were handed down by their fathers, traditions really that obscured the law of God, were riffing with the disciples because of this issue of baptism. Is this a new form of purification, and do all of us have to submit ourselves to it? It's not clear exactly what the issue might be. It may circle around these things with regards to baptism. But it did cause the disciples to question what was going on because now Jesus is offering a baptism. And these kinds of issues, or this particular issue, of course, arises because now Jesus is ministering. And whenever the Lord Jesus Christ is at work, uh, the devil interjects. It's not clear whether John's disciples or the Jews raised the issue. But there was an issue and there was a debate. And that kind of contention, that kind of division, that's the work of Satan. 
And whenever Christ is working among a people, there will always be these kinds of divisions. So what do they do? They come to John. Verse 26. And they came unto John. And they ask him a question. Rabbi. Well, they make a statement, excuse me. Rabbi. He that was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you bear witness, behold, the same baptizes, and all men come to him. Look at these four things. Of course, they use the term rabbi with great respect. They love John the Baptist. And, you know, part of their offense, of course, arising from their uh, discussion with the Jews, part of their offense, uh, Paul captures the idea possibly in 1 Thessalonians 5. Look at what Paul says about your teachers. He makes a statement in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 12 and 13. He says, I beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. So it may just be that because of love and devotion to John the Baptist, who they received as a teacher, that's what, in essence, that's what rabbi means, and as a prophet who was declaring the truth of God's word, they've taken some offense now at what Christ is doing. So you see, the Jews come with their a tricky question about purification, and their controversy raises a controversy with the Lord Jesus. The devil is very, very deceptive. This is the same way he came to Eve, right? Did God really say? These deceptive questions that are meant to trip up God's people. Why? Well, the world hates the Lord Jesus Christ. And particularly something that you have to know is that religious people who don't love God hate God and his people. So his disciples uh, take offense. And listen to how they state this. They say four things. They say, he that was with you beyond the Jordan. They don't even use his name. They don't say the Christ, the Messiah, which would, would have been sort of a, uh, a, a, a strong, almost contradiction to challenge the Messiah that way. So they just say, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, this, this fellow who was, who was with you, they don't even refer to his baptism. He was there with John, and John baptized him. To whom thou bearest witness, you gave him credibility. You said he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The same baptizes, and all men come to him. 
He's doing the work that you're supposed to be doing. And now everyone is flooding to him. Maybe a bit of an exaggeration because if you look back at verse 23, and John also was baptizing near the Anon, near Salim, in Anon, near Salim, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. So John is still baptizing. But as their ministries are running alongside each other, Jesus' ministry is growing. And John's disciples, or those that would have come to John, either are, they're both, uh, they're all going to Christ now. They're going to receive his baptism. And now we have, so that's the setting. It's sort of what's going on, right? You have the, the, the time references, a controversy arises with regards to Jesus in contrast to John the Baptist's ministry. And now John gives us, in response to this, first he gives us a maxim in verse 27. Verse 28, we have a reminder. And verses and verse 29 and 30, we can include verse 30, we have a metaphor. And from these three points, we, uh, John gives us his view of the Christ. So here's the maxim. He says, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. It's unclear whether John is speaking of himself or of Jesus. And I don't think he has either or specific, uh, either himself or Jesus in mind. He's just stating a general maxim. So it could be applied to John's ministry. And this is absolutely true. John can, can receive nothing except what was given to him from heaven. Of course, the language here of given to him from heaven, this uh, is a reference to God, our Father who is in heaven. And the Jews commonly spoke this way. John was a prophet sent from God. Listen to how he states it in verse 28. I am sent before him. This was the prophet who in Malachi and Isaiah was promised to, to come and prepare the way of the Lord. That's why he was sent. That was his purpose for coming. So that if you turn with me quickly to Malachi 3, we've taken a, a look at these passages when we were in John chapter 1, but by way of reminder... If you turn to Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, and then Malachi 4, 5. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and, she, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Chapter 4, 
Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. John's ministry was given to him by God. Remember when the angel comes and speaks to his father in Luke. um, he's, He's there ministering as a priest, and the angel comes and tells him exactly this. And then when his father, Zechariah's tongue is untied and he's able to speak, what does he declare? He declares this very truth, the truth of John the Baptist's ministry, that he comes to prepare the way of the Lord. And this was given to him from God as Christ's ministry was given to him by his Father. Look at verse 34 of John 3. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. John understands this. John the Baptist understands this clearly. Christ's ministry was given to him by his father. This is not to uh, subordinate Christ or, or he's some lesser being or God. No, but in the incarnation, he takes the form of a servant to, to encapsulate this maxim, even the, the way. Uh, James puts it, James puts it in a similar way. He says, every good gift gift comes from the Father of lights. It comes from above, from the Father of lights. So that John's ministry and Christ's ministry was given to him by his Father. Look at Hebrews 5. In Hebrews chapter 5, and verse 4, I'll I'll begin from verse 2. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself is compassed with infirmities. And by reason hereof, he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to to offer for sins, speaking of the high priest. And no man takes this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God. So John the Baptist, in a similar way, didn't take this honor upon himself. Aaron didn't take the honor upon himself. Christ didn't take the honor upon himself. This honor was bestowed by the Father. And this is a maxim that we have to remember. You know, as so specifically, as, as a, a congregation considers their pastor, the pastor, yes, he has a desire for the work. There are those musts, those qualifications that Paul gives in the pastoral epistles that must be evident in the life of a pastor. Yet God calls pastors as Paul says even in Ephesians 4, they are gifts of Christ to the church. A man who takes this office upon himself 
is foolish. James tells us that teachers will be judged with a stricter judgment. Not only that, a congregation must remember that any blessing they receive from their pastor is ultimately a blessing from God. The pastor himself is unable to bring men to faith. And once they've come to faith, he's unable to build them up by his own power. That is the work of the Spirit, the Spirit working through the pastor and then working in the people corporately and individually. We must remember these things when we're, when we're gathering together as a people. And then even in the church, any blessing or any goodness, if, if you're known to be a church that is loving, that is united in the truth, that is pure, that pursues holiness and desires to worship Christ in spirit and in truth, all of those gifts and all of those graces, they come from God. They come from God himself. And this is something that we must always keep in mind. So John continues, after the maxim now, a reminder. You yourselves bear me witness. You know that these are the truths that I preached and I proclaimed to you. It wasn't that John had not made these things clear. If you turn just briefly to John chapter 1, when the religious leaders come to him and ask him, in John chapter 1, verse 20, the Jews, they send priests, they send Levites from Jerusalem asking John, who are you? In verse 20, he says, I am not the Christ. In verse 21, they ask him, are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? No. Verse 23, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. John knew exactly who he was, and he declared these things clearly. He made it known to them. He made it known to his followers and to everyone else who would listen to him that he was not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. You think about this kind of text. Can you, in good conscience, speak this way? You know, Paul tells uh, the church at Corinth, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So follow, follow my ways as I follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, John's disciples had a particular zeal for John because maybe they were converted under his ministry or were blessed by his ministry. Their sins had been exposed, their need for redemption, their need for purification, for a right standing with God, their need for repentance may have been awakened by John's ministry, or maybe it was confirmed. Maybe they were longing for the coming of the Messiah, and now John is preaching, and they are being built up spiritually. So there's this rich blessing that they're receiving from his ministry. So he has to remind them that he is not the Christ, 
But can you in good conscience, examining yourself to those men and women who you may have influence over, let's say if you're a father or a mother, or you have some, uh, some influence over folks in the church, maybe in your small group or your peers, is your desire for that influence and in the exercise of that influence for them to know Christ better? Or is it just a desire to have people follow you? You see, because, you know, so for example, for parents, our prayers and our desires are, are for our children to grow up into the Lord, to, to come to a knowledge of Christ as, as early as, as God can save them. We want them saved and we want them serving the Lord. But then they grow up and they're not doing exactly what we want them to do. I'm not talking about open rebellion and sin. What, what I'm talking about is that they're, they're not imitating me as much. They're not like I am or doing what I want them to do. They're serving God, but in a way maybe that I'm not interested in having them serve God that way. They're being shaped, molded, and fashioned after the image of Christ, and we don't like it. We need to have this view. We need to understand who Christ is, why he came, and that the goal of all of our ministry, of all of the work that we do, and I use the word ministry, really, you could say all of our service, all of our service to our spouse, all of our service to our children, all of our our service to our neighbor, all of our service to our family members, to unbelievers that are around us, is for this purpose, really, is, is to prepare the way of the Lord. Not redemptive historically like John the Baptist, but really is to prepare the way for Christ to be their head, for Christ to lead them, for Christ to be the one who takes charge of their life and not us. This is the kind of stuff that really breaks up churches even. When they lose sight that What they're doing is that they're coming together for the purpose of serving Christ and allowing Christ to have his way with his bride, allowing Christ's word to be supreme and preeminent that they might be shaped and fashioned and formed into the image of Christ. We lose sight of this very important truth. And John the Baptist did not lose sight of his ministry, which was to prepare the way of the Lord. Their, their, their ministries, they dovetailed because they're proclaiming the same thing. But John is a forerunner, and he's preparing the way for the trailblazer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's, he's fine with this. And it's something that's been proclaimed often in his ministry, the supremacy of Christ. You see, uh, God has given us ministers for our good, for our joy, for our enjoyment, so that we might be built up into Christ. But what we tend to do is we make idols of them. So, you know, um, some uh, 
internet uh, preacher and uh let me not say that derogatory in a that's kind of derogatory to say internet preacher so some some uh a minister of the word uh, blesses you in some way by his ministry maybe you were locked up into some legalistic understanding of the christian life or maybe you were in a cult and unconverted and in total darkness or maybe some aspect of your life was in shambles and a minister of the word a preacher uh, uh, God used them in some way, used their ministry in some way to be a blessing to you. And then that preacher becomes the benchmark for all of Christianity. And if your pastor contradicts that preacher in, or minister in any way, you've got a problem with your pastor. Um, we have to remember, I've, I've been richly uh, blessed by uh, preaching and teaching from, you know, different periods of history and from different places uh, on this planet, uh, even today. Yet we, we have to remember the point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians. Look at 1 Corinthians, and it's at the end of uh, chapter, chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 21, Paul puts it this way. Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours. See, don't, don't glory in the man. Don't glory in the individual. Right? And don't desire for people to glory in you. Why? For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or John the Baptist, or, you know, John MacArthur, or John Owen, or John Calvin, or Jonathan Edwards, whoever it might be, let us not glory in the man, but let us glory in the God who gave the gift. Let's glory in the Creator and in the gift He's given us through these fallible men. And then for those of us who see those who we minister to growing up into Christ, uh, let us give glory to God for that also. So the maxim, God's absolute sovereignty over all things, all good gifts come from God. Second, the reminder and third now, this rich metaphor. He that has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. So, John, John the Baptist now takes this metaphor of, uh, of a marriage, really. And actually, it's of sort of of the betrothal period into the wedding ceremony. The, the involvement of the bridegroom in a Jewish wedding, or at least in the way that John here is identifying or describing the wedding, was a lot more involved than uh, 
bri- uh, excuse me, um, the, the friend of the bridegroom, excuse me, was far much more involved in the entire ceremony. We'd probably call him the, the best man. So the, what the best man would do is he would arrange, arrange the entire ceremony. That was his job. His responsibility was to set the whole thing up. Not only that, but the best man, the friend of the bridegroom here, the best man was involved in all of the communication that occurred before the ceremony between the bridegroom and the bride. He would go back and forth communicating with them. And then once that the, the, uh, the marriage was solidified and confirmed then, what would happen is during the ceremony, the, bride, uh, the bridegroom would come and in the room with the bride would be the best man. And he would hear his voice and he would open the door to him. And then the husband, the husband, the bridegroom would have the bride. And by using this metaphor, John the Baptist is, is sort of saying, for me to have the place of Christ would be to commit the greatest sin against my own friend. That's not my place. These are his people. My, my duty, my responsibility was to bring them to him. That's my only purpose. My only purpose is to bring the bride to Christ. And Paul explains it. It takes up the same metaphor, but uses it differently. He's not speaking to his disciples that have a zeal for him, but to his disciples that have a zeal for others. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, look at the way he described it there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, I'll read from verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, beginning at verse 1, but verse 2 is where the reference is. Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And John understood that that was his role. He was was bringing these people as, to use Paul's language, as, as a chaste virgin to Christ. And he was not going to allow pride, a lack of humility to, to sully the bride of Christ. He was going to bring God's people to the bridegroom. And that should be the work of, of, of course, of a pastor's ministry, but of a church's ministry. The goal here is not to bring men to the pastor of this church. God forbid. The goal is to bring men to Christ. And that, that is what has to be the driving impulse 
of the entire congre- of an of an entire congregation and of every individual member of the church to bring men to Christ to bring our children to Christ to bring all of our family members to Christ to bring our neighbors to Christ of course to bring ourselves to Christ it's it's not you know uh, we can make good reformed baptists that understand the history of Reformed Baptists and understand the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith and go to hell. Because the purpose is to bring men to Christ. Now there is doctrine. There is, there is truth. I, I heard one pastor preach an entire sermon on immersion as the mode of baptism from verse 23 of this chapter. And I thought, that's a good sermon. It was a good sermon. And uh, I'm convinced that immersion is the way. Uh, and I think that that may be indicated in verse 3. So there are truths that we hold to and that we ought to proclaim. We're not going to be simplistic and, and hold to some uh, naive creedalism, no creed but Christ or, or, or something foolish like that. That's not my point, but the driving impetus of all of doctrine, of all of theology, of all of preaching, of all of praying, is to bring men to Christ. If we are not bringing them to Christ, we have no purpose. He who does not gather with me scatters, Christ said. And as Christ gathers, he gathers people unto himself. He that has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. I'm here. When John the Baptist sees Jesus the first time, he he says, I am unworthy to, to tie your sandals or to untie your sandals. I'm not worthy to do that. And you want me to baptize you? And now that John hears that Jesus' ministry is expanding, that men are coming to Christ. He says, this, my joy, therefore, is full. That was his, his ministry is complete. And that should be the goal of all of our ministry in all of our life is to have men and women come to Christ. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time together. And we ask, Lord, that you would uh, please uh, bless the preaching of your word in this place, that Christ might be made known. Help us, Lord, to grow in our knowledge of your Son. And may we be taken up, Lord, with the truth that everything that we have comes from you. May, may, May we not be ungrateful and look to others and and desire what they have. Have us, Lord God, to be constantly taken up with the truth that every good gift, gift comes from you. And may we often be reminded, Lord, that our goal and our goal is to set forth Christ 
and to set him forth in all of his perfections and excellencies uh, to, to others and to ourselves and to one another here in this church. And may this work, Lord, uh, bring us great joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.